Our sermon passage today will be Exodus 33, verse 18 through 34, 9. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Thank you. So let me um, start by introducing myself. My name is Spencer S. Price, if you don't know me, and I help lead our... um, missions team efforts here at Redeemer. Uh, My wife and I met serving in Uganda with the International Mission Board after college. We went through the same program that the the Southern Baptist Convention's mission board does uh, that Duffy went through that she mentioned earlier. After spending our time overseas, uh, we moved to Louisville and I got a Master of Arts in Missions from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And we were planning on going overseas. We were in the application process to go as career missionaries with the International Mission Board uh, with the goal of going to South Asia um, when some chronic health conditions uh, arose for my wife, Carrie, that kept us from being able to go overseas. Uh, God has led us down a lot of different and interesting paths and turns since that time. But the different, all the different places he has led us and the different things he has had us do, we have consistently felt called to wherever he has us work in churches like Redeemer to mobilize others to be able to go and to be involved in missions. If we can't go ourselves, we feel our calling is to help others be able to go and to serve in that way. Before we get started, I wanted to just mention um, with the Mission House ministry that was mentioned earlier that the, the Bettertons are doing, what a big impact that can have for our church and for the missionaries that are serving if we really do a good job connecting with them and loving for them and caring for them. Uh, When I was overseas, I knew a missionary who served in southern Sudan and northern Uganda, 
And he was not from Midland, Texas, but whenever he would come back, every three to four years, International Mission Board missionaries come back for a six-month to one-year furlough in the United States. And every time he would come back, he would go to Midland, Texas. Now, I don't know if you're super familiar with Midland, Texas, but in terms, on the scale of like cool cities like Nashville, it's kind of somewhere down, down here. In fact, it's probably not a whole lot different from southern Sudan and northern Uganda, flat, they're hot, there's, there's nothing, um, just nothing. Uh, <clears throat> I had a friend in college from Midland, Texas, and what she said they, they did on the weekends is, if you know what a pump jack is, they're the oil things that look like birds that go like this, she said every weekend for fun they would go ride the pump jacks, like that, that's what you had to do in Midland. And so, so this missionary family, every time they would come back to the States, they would go and stay in Midland because First Baptist Midland had a mission house, and First Baptist Midland loved them and involved them in their ministry so much that that was always the number one place that they wanted to go and stay. So it's a great opportunity for us to be able to, to serve missionaries through that house. So I want to take you back to the year 1999. Um, Bill Clinton was president. A gallon of gas was $1.22. Uh, for most Americans, when you access the internet, you had to hear this screeching noise as your AOL dial-up was connecting. Um, Apple was this struggling niche computer company whose biggest success was the multicolored iMac. Um, the cutting edge of mobile technology was the BlackBerry 850 two-way pager. That's right, a two-way pager. Um, it actually sent email, but it was advertised as a pager. That tells you how how advanced we were. Our greatest national anxiety was over the Y2K computer bug. They were such simple times. We were so naive back then. And Jamie Mosley had a full head of hair. And so 1999, it was a long time ago. And in, in January 1999, Monster.com ran what has become a classic Super Bowl commercial and one of the most successful as well. And they had in black and white these scenes of these little kids saying what they wanted to do when they grew up. And they said things like, when I grow up, I want to file papers all day. I want to climb my way all the way up to middle management. I want to be replaced on a whim. I want to be a yes man, yes man, yes sir. And I want to be underappreciated. It was a really successful campaign because... It made you laugh, but it also kind of made you uncomfortable. Because when you see it, you're like, well, that's kind of where my life is in a lot of ways when I look at my career. I'm, it, it may not fit exactly one of those, but if I were to go back to a little kid, what I said about what my job would be is not quite where I am today. It hit this truth that made us uncomfortable while it made us laugh, and so it drove tons of traffic to Monster.com. They're one of the few websites that advertise that year that's still around. You see, we, this sermon today is, is about the truth that this hits on, and, that is, and it's, it's about glory, which is about greatness and magnificence and splendor and awesomeness. You see, we desire glory in our lives, but our lives always come up lacking. And today we're going to see how we can live a life full of glory, not a life full of our glory, or of the glory that the world has to offer, but a life full of God's glory. What we're going to see is that a life of missions is a life of glory. 
that our hearts long for glory but seek it in all the wrong places. That God's glory is most fully revealed in Jesus' redeeming work. And then in this life, we witness God's glory most fully in the work of missions. So to start, our hearts long for glory but seek it in all the wrong places. So here at Redeemer, we believe that the Word of God is our ultimate standard for truth. But I know I don't need to read you a verse of Scripture for you to know that your life is not everything that you've always hoped it would be. We are hardwired to seek glory in our lives in one way or another, but our lives don't match up. Our dreams as kids are always for these big and grand and great and perfect things, and yet our life, and especially our suburban life, isn't quite the same. I mean, let's be honest, how many of us are living lives of adventure and intrigue, the kind of lives that make for blockbuster movies or New York Times best-selling novels, or even for just like some obscure Netflix sitcom that three people watch? <clears throat> and think about when, we, when we're little kids, if we were to say what we wanted to do when, when we grew up, like think back, what did I want to be when I grew up? Was it when I grow up? I want to drive a minivan and shuttle my kids from one activity to the next until I am exhausted. When I grow up, I want to commute in traffic on 65 for an hour each way, every day. When I grow up, I want to have a job where all I do is stare at a computer screen or sit in meetings and answer emails. When I grow up, I want to be so busy that I never have any time for anything that I actually really want to do. Or when I grow up, I want to be constantly focused on making sure that all four or five or ten of my social media feeds get as many likes as possible so everybody thinks that I'm cool and my life is great. See, we each have our own ideas of what a glorious life may be. For some, it could be fame and wealth and power. For some, it could be quiet seclusion and peaceful anonymity. For some, it's a successful career and a penthouse in the 505 building downtown. For others, it's a life working the land in a small cottage in the woods. For some, it's a meaningful job. For others, it's homeschooling our children. For some, glory would be standing up here in the front and speaking. For others, glory is hanging out in the back with Andy in the sound booth where nobody knows that you're there. <clears throat> Each of us seeks glory in different ways. We may seek it through a career or through our family. We may seek it through material possessions or wealth. We may seek it through our re <clears throat> reputation or our celebrity, through status or power. We may seek it through having the newest styles and, and looking good. We may seek it through politics, through education, through fitness, through social media, or maybe even through religious activity, moralism, or deep theological knowledge. But no matter how we seek glory, it is never enough. And Romans tells us this in Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we tend to make a mistake when we read this, and we tend to read it as, For all have sinned and fall short of the righteousness of God. Or for all have sinned and fall short of the holiness of God. And to be clear, those are both aspects of the glory of God, but that's not what it says. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which means that our lives are not full of <clears throat> the greatness and the splendor and the majesty of God in the way that they could be if it weren't for our sin. <clears throat> we are always going to fall 
short of that. We love glory, we desire glory, but our lives aren't filled with glory. They are mundane, they're plain, they're normal, they're boring, they're tedious, they're unexciting, they're full of unfulfilled desires, broken dreams, and constant dissatisfaction. Our lives fall short of the glory of God. But, if we truly believe what Scripture teaches, we can live lives full of glory. Not lives full of our glory, and not lives full of the glory of the things of this world, but lives full of God's glory. And we can because God's glory is most fully revealed to us in Jesus' redeeming work. So a life of missions is a life of glory. Our hearts long for glory, but seek it in all the wrong places. And God's glory is most fully revealed in Jesus' redeeming work. So if we go back to that passage in Exodus that Emmy read for us earlier. We think of the context of that passage. So God has delivered his people from Israel, <clears throat> Israel from Egypt. He descends on Mount Sinai. He's giving Moses the law. And, and during that time, Aaron is leading God's people in the idolatrous worship of a golden calf. God gets a little bit upset, understandably, and he threatens to destroy the people of Israel, start over. But Moses intercedes on their behalf. He prays that God would relent, and God answers his request and relents. Then God says, you know what, so I'm not going to destroy them, but as they go in the promised land, my presence will not go with them. And Moses gets down on his knees and begs again, God, do not send us without you. Please go with us. And God says, all right, I will go with you. And then in Exodus 33:18, Moses goes for the gold and he says, all right, I've gotten, I've gotten the first thing that I asked for. He didn't destroy them. I got the second thing I asked for. He's going to go with us. So I'm going to go big now. I'm going to say, God, show me your glory. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, you may, it may make you stop and think for a, a second. Why is Moses asking to see God's glory? I mean, think of everything that Moses has seen this point in his life. So within a relatively short time, he has seen God appear to him in a burning bush that was always on fire but never burning up and speaking to him. He has seen God transform his staff into a snake. He has seen God bring the ten plagues on Egypt. He has seen God turn the Nile River into blood, cover the land of Egypt in frogs, fill the air with swarms of gnats and swarms of flies, kill off all the Egyptians' livestock, cover the Egyptians from head to toe with boils and sores. He has seen God rain down storms of hail and fire, devastate the land with swarms of locusts, blot out the sun for three days of darkness, and bring about the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. He has seen God lead Israel with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He has seen God part the Red Sea, let the Israelites through, and then cover the Red Sea back over the Egyptian army. He has drank bitter water that God turned sweet. He has eaten the manna that God sent from heaven. He has drank the water that God flowed from a rock. He has seen God descend on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and earthquakes. He has heard the booming voice of God giving the Ten Commandments. And yet in all of this, Moses believes that he has still not seen God's glory. He still believes that his experience comes short of the fullness of the glory of God. 
And literally no one in history before or history since has seen God's miraculous power on display at such a great scale and with such frequency as Moses has seen. And yet all of that was not enough to satisfy Moses. All of that, and he knew that there was still more glory than what he had experienced. Is it any wonder then that the ways we see glory in our life never suffice? That our career doesn't satisfy our heart's desire for glory, or our kids, or our favorite sports teams, or your house, or hobbies, or our bank accounts, or our family vacations, or our restaurant adventures, or our social media feeds. I mean, who among us has seen even one-tenth of the miraculous works of God that Moses himself witnessed? And we wonder why every other source of glory in life falls short and fails to satisfy. So Moses asks this, and God doesn't say, like, hey, buddy, I think you've seen it already. But he says, all right, I'm going to answer your prayer. And he, so Moses comes up to the mountain and stands in the cleft of the rock, And as God passes by, he proclaims something. So God does not just visibly pass by, but as he passes by, he makes a statement. He says in Exodus 34, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, it's not enough for God simply to pass by physically and Moses visually behold his glory. God has to tell Moses something and he has to point Moses to something. And that's something that he's pointing Moses to when he makes this declaration. That's Jesus. Now you may think that's funny because nowhere in there does it say Jesus. Nowhere in there does it mention anybody dying on a cross. Nowhere in there does it mention someone coming down to earth. Nowhere in there does it mention God's son. But right in the middle of what Moses says is a contradiction. And it's really interesting because... This, this description of God where he describes himself is God's description of himself that is quoted the most by other passages of the Bible. So it's, you will see it there more than any other description of God. And there's this contradiction. You see, he says that he will be merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression. However, he will by no means clear the guilty. By no means. So he says first, I will clear the guilty. And then he says, I will not clear the guilty. So how can that be? How can he be merciful, gracious, and forgive sin, but not be merciful, gracious, and forgive sin? Like They're mutually exclusive. They don't go together. It would be like if after church you invited someone to go to lunch today, and they said, you know what? I'll go to lunch with you, but I will by no means go to lunch with you. Do I... Like, I don't understand what you're saying. Like, you will go, but you will not go. Like, you can't, you can't do both. Like, one or the other. Come on. It'd be the same thing if you were to say, I'll go down to Nashville, but I will by no means set foot in Davidson County. Like, you can't do it. Like, Nashville is entirely within Davidson County. It's one or the other. It can't be both. And yet, here in God's 
description of himself is this contradiction. He will forgive sin, but he will not forgive sin. He will be merciful, but he will not be merciful. He will clear the guilty, but he will not clear the guilty. So how does this make sense? It makes sense in Jesus. Because Jesus is what stands in the middle of that by no means and pulls those things together. See, Jesus took our sins upon himself and took our punishment so that we could be forgiven. In him, our sin is fully punished, so the guilt is not cleared. It is by no means cleared. The guilt is still there, but it is put on him. He takes the punishment, therefore we can be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin goes to him, his righteousness comes to us. The sin is by no means forgiven, and yet God is still merciful and gracious and forgiving of sin. So when God decides to show Moses his glory, he passes by visibly, and he says, if you want to see my glory, look at Jesus. That's where you see my glory. So he, he showed it to Moses, but even Moses could not see the fullness of it because he could not fully grasp what God was talking about and see Jesus. So God shows Moses his glory by passing by and pointing Moses to the salvation that is to come in Jesus so we can see that God's glory is most fully revealed to us in Jesus' redeeming work. So we can have a life full of glory by looking and seeing that glory in Jesus. But there's still a problem. We want to see glory in this life, but we can't see Jesus. There's not somewhere you can go and Jesus will be there physically, visibly, in a way that you can see him and interact with him and talk with him. We know that he is among us and his spirit is in us, but we can't see him himself, not until he returns. And we know that God's glory is most fully shown in Jesus' death and resurrection, but that was a one-time deal and there was not a film crew present. So we, we can't pull it up and see it visibly and watch it happen. So how can we see this glory today? If we were to pray Moses' prayer, and I would encourage all of us, not a bad prayer to pray, to see God's glory. If we were to pray Moses' prayer, how would God answer that in our lives today? To see his glory. And the answer is that in this life, we witness God's glory most fully in the work of missions. So a life of missions is a life of glory. Our hearts long for glory, but seek it in all the wrong places. God's glory is most fully revealed in Jesus' redeeming work. And in this life, we witness God's glory most fully in the work of missions. So imagine, we're going to go even further back than 1999. <clears throat> all the way back to the village of Bethany outside of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And you have this friend, this guy you know, named Lazarus, and Lazarus dies. Now, this is not particularly remarkable because everybody dies. And while now we're kind of used to, in our culture, like people die when they're older, and it's a weird thing when someone dies when they're younger. Back then, they didn't have all of the modern <clears throat> medical and technological advances we have now, so it was a normal thing for anybody to die at any age because anything can happen to you. So there's absolutely nothing remarkable in the fact that Lazarus is dead. It's normal plain, standard, happens all the time. Then several days later, Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden, things go crazy. It tends to happen. 
In verse 38 to 44, we read of John chapter 11. So if you want to turn, John chapter 11, verse 38 to 44. It says, Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. All right, it's very practical. It's going to stink. What on earth are you doing? And Jesus said to her, did I, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. (coughs) And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So we see in the resurrection of, of Lazarus, we see the glory of God. Jesus tells us we will see the glory of God. But the glory of God shown in Lazarus rising from the dead is not just in the fact that Lazarus rose from the dead. There's actually more to it than that. See, if you go back to verse 21, Jesus tells Martha what's going to happen. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She didn't get it. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You see, Lazarus' resurrection does not just show the glory of God because a dead man rose again, but because that resurrection is pointing forward to Jesus' death and resurrection. And that resurrection is pointing all the way forward to when Jesus is going to come back and raise again everybody who has died who has believed in Him. But also, in between those two, It's pointing to the resurrection that happens every time somebody believes in Jesus for the first time. Every time they come to faith in Him. Every time somebody has that initial moment of belief where the Holy Spirit regenerates them, it is someone who is dead who is coming back to life. And that is how we see the glory of God at work in the world in our lives today. That's how we can see God's redeeming work going on, on display, where we can experience and see and be a part of God's glory in Jesus Christ. You see, apart from Christ, we are all dead in sin, but by His grace we are made alive. In Ephesians chapter 2, it starts out in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and whence you once walked. And uh, Greek scholars say that that word dead, what it means is dead. Like, dead. Like, there's no ambiguity here. There's no shades of meaning. It's like, dead, 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 you're dead. It's not like, uh, 
it's, it's not like the Princess Bride, we're like mostly dead. Like, no, it's like you're dead. <laughs> so we're dead in the trespasses and sin and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Made us alive. It's not just pointing towards the making us alive again when he comes back. It is that in that moment that we believe he makes us alive. He resurrects us from the dead. And so every time we share the gospel with someone and we see them come to faith, we are seeing that redeeming work taking someone dead and making them alive. And we can see and experience and be a part of the glory of God. And as much as we see God's glory through the salvation of individuals, we especially see that glory as God's salvation goes out to the ends of the earth. Jesus makes it clear he did not just die for some sinners in some places but that he died for sinners from all over the world. He did not just come for the people of Israel, but he came to die for people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. It's an amazing thing that you can travel around the world and meet former Buddhists in Southeast Asia and former Hindus in India and former atheists in China and former animists in Africa and former Muslims in the Middle East and good old boys right here in the American South, all of whom have been made new by Christ, all of whom have been resurrected from the dead into new life. You see, from Exodus through Joshua, there's this flurry of miraculous activity that we've just talked about, and it's pointing towards the law and the promised land. In the gospel and Acts, there's a similar flurry of miraculous activity, but it's pointing towards people of all nations being brought to new life in Christ. The high point of the miraculous activities of Acts are not the healings, it's not the speakings in tongues, it's the thousands upon thousands from all over the Roman world coming to faith in Jesus. And when we get through the first five books of the Bible, it ends with the Israelites going into the promised land, and that seems to be the point. But when we get through the book of Acts, it ends with the gospel going out to the nations. It literally is ending with Paul proclaiming the gospel. There's it doesn't really end per se, it just starts a new beginning, and that new beginning is the gospel going out. So if you want to see the glory of God and experience the glory of God and have a life filled with the glory of God, you do that by sharing the gospel, by seeing lives transformed, and by taking part in missions. As we see lives transformed by the gospel, and especially as we see the gospel advance across ethnic and racial and linguistic and cultural and, natural and re- national and religious boundaries, we see the glory of God at work in a real and visible and experiential and tangible way. When I was in college, I took my very first mission trip to Ukraine. Uh, for those of you that were at the men's event, there was a hotel there and it was really cold. And we were helping to kick off a church plant by doing a series of evangelistic services five different nights in a row in the school auditorium where this church was going to meet. And back at the time, I had this deep-seated fear of public speaking. It's like in high school, we would have to do 
you know, these speeches every now and then in class. And whenever it happened, like, I would go to the bathroom right before the class. And then as soon as I walked in the door, like, I felt like I needed to pee my pants. Like, it was weird. Like, there's nothing there. How does it feel this way? And I would be, like, visibly shaking and my voice would be audibly trembling. And I always, like, I got good grades on most things, but not on anything that involved me speaking in front of people. Um, it was bad. And so they, they asked for volunteers to preach. I was like, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't. I, but you know what? I'll pray about it. So I prayed about it. And the more I prayed about it, I felt led to do so. So I went ahead and volunteered and said, I'll, I'll do it. A couple weeks later, they came back and they said, hey, guess what? You were the only person on the trip who's volunteered to preach. Um, would you like to do all five or would you like to just do a few and we'll have one of the nationals do the rest? And I wanted at that point to be like, well, since no one else volunteered, can I like just rescind that volunteer offer and also not do it and have the nationals do all of it? Um, absolutely scared out of my mind, but I prayed and I prayed and for some reason I felt God leading me to do it three times. And I was scared out of my mind, but I felt that's what God was calling me to do, so I did it. And I spent a couple of months praying and working on the sermons and praying and praying and praying. And I got up that first night, and at the end of the message, um, five people afterwards came down to profess new faith in Christ. So that first night, it was again, it was just like in high school. Like I felt like I had to go to the bathroom. I was trembling. My voice was trembling. Five people came down. So the second night, I'm a little bit more confident. I don't feel like I have to go to the bathroom. It's a miracle. God does work miracles. Still a little shaky. Voice was probably a bit more solid now. Um, second night, end of the message, about five people, one or two at a time, came down afterwards to profess new faith in Christ. So then we get to the third night. Uh, no more shaking. Confidence is up. We get to the, get to the end, feeling pretty good. Fifteen people came down afterwards to profess new faith in Christ right away and all at once. And so all of a sudden, I went from like composed and solid and standing to where I, I had to just go down and sit in the front row and could do nothing but weep because I was completely overwhelmed by the glory of God. And that was the sense, just completely overwhelmed by the glory of God at work to take those 15 people and bring them from death into new life right in front of my eyes and working through my words. Oh, I'm overwhelmed by the glory of God. That's what we can have if we're engaging others with the gospel. If we're out sharing with others. If we're out doing the work of missions. A life of missions is a life of glory. Our hearts long for glory but seek it in all the wrong places. God's glory is most fully revealed in Jesus' redeeming work. And in this life, we witness God's glory most fully in the work of missions. So... What will you do? C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, insects, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. So each of us has a choice. We can continue to live for and seek after all the minor, failing glories of our plain, uninspired suburban lives. Or we can live lives full of the glory of God as we take the gospel to the lost. It can be risky. It can involve great sacrifice. It can involve great labor. 
But all in all, the glory of God is worth the cost. So I encourage you to share the gospel, to give to support missions, to be in prayer about what God would have you do and where he would have you do it. And to be willing to lay down all these lesser things we live for and live for the glory of God instead. Potentially in some of the hardest and darkest and most dangerous places in the world. Because those are the places left where the gospel is most unknown. Which also means those are the places where you have the potential to see God's glory work the most. We aren't all called to go to the ends of the earth. We aren't all called to go to those darkest places. But some of us may be. And we are all called to ask God how he would have us serve him in this way. And we are all called to make disciples. So a life of missions is a life of glory. Our hearts long for glory but seek it in all the wrong places. God's glory is most fully revealed in Jesus' redeeming work. And in this life we witness God's glory most fully in the work of missions. The question is not so much how much are you willing to lay down It's how much do you desire to see the glory of God? Let me pray for us. Dear Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We thank you that though we are sinful and our lives fall short of your glory, nonetheless you give us the opportunity to partake in your glory and to see your glory and to experience your glory in Jesus Christ. Those of us who have believed in you have felt and experienced that glory as you took our dead lives and made them new and gave us new life in Christ. And we thank you that you give us the opportunity to be a part of seeing that glory go out, a part of playing a role in the redeeming work of Christ and sharing the gospel, and that we have the opportunity to experience that glory as you transform lives. And I pray that all of us would take time to really and genuinely ask how you would have us serve you in this way, how you would have us go and make disciples of the lost, and that we would be willing to do whatever you would call us to do for the sake of your glory. We pray this in your Son's name.